alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to another episode on the Remastered Podcast. I am your host, Ismahan Abdullahi, and today I am joined by a very special and esteemed guest, Brother Bilal Shabazz, and we are talking about Black History Month being more than a month. Brother Bilal is a special guest, longtime Islamic worker, our own mass board of, um, a board of trustees member, and an all-around amazing brother. Brother Bilal, can you uh, take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience? Assalamu alaikum. Uh, my sister Ismail said my name is Bilal Shabazz. Um, I'm a current uh, Mass BOT member. I've uh, been a part of Mass for man, since the early 2000s. Uh, originally from California, from Fresno, California. Uh, born and raised. Uh, graduated from California State University, Fresno. And then uh, got married and my beautiful wife Malika, which many of you know, and uh, we we moved out to Florida to be closer to, with her mom. And uh, back in uh, 1992, originally, uh, and been here often. We moved back to California for a little while, and then we came back to Florida. Been here in Florida consistently consistently since uh, 2005. Uh, we've been married for it'll be 30 years actually in uh, in, in June. And uh, and many of you know our children, uh, Jaffer, Akil, and Nandi, and they're off doing their own thing and uh, being successful, alhamdulillah. So um, yeah, and I've worked, um, actually I have many different hats, but my main hat is uh, <laughs> I'm a clinical, uh, oncology clinical researcher. Uh, I was working for a big pharmaceutical company, but recently decided to move into my own thing, still doing clinical research, but just uh, independent at this point, but yeah. That, that's what I do. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we can uh, ask the family to come move back to California as a native California, and I'm always recruiting folks from other states, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? We, I don't know, looking from being here in Florida and, and looking back, man, you guys, <laughs> and talking to my, you know, I still have family, all my family is actually still there. So, you guys got some things with the fires last year. And, so I don't know. <laughs> we 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 are thinking about moving possibly since everybody's been. We're almost an empty nester now with Jaffer. It's the last one, so mostly, yeah. May Allah bless you and the entire family. Alhamdulillah. So I know this podcast. Um, wish we had a lot of time to talk about this, but I really want to dive in. As we mm. know, February is Black History Month, and Brother Bilal, I've always been torn when it comes to this month, and I'll explain why. I recognize the importance of celebrating and uplifting the stories, the success, the achievements, the struggles of Black Americans from all walks of life during this month. But at the same time, I've always thought, shouldn't this be year round and not just a month? It's not something that you do, particularly just in the month of February, completely forget about it and not really approach it from a deep perspective that changes and challenges the dominant narrative um, when it comes to just really centering Black Americans, whether it's from a historical perspective, whether it's the present, really thinking about, about Black future, you know, Black Americans built America and they laid that foundation for the wealth that it enjoys today. And I can say that unapologetically because that's what history shows us, right? Black Americans lead and continue to influence culture, both from, from, from music to fashion, to literature, to policy, you name it and Black Americans change America for the better. They've always have. They've always demanded more and more despite the systemic oppressions that they face. Um, and then specifically looking at our history as, as Muslims in America and our own Islamic history here, it didn't start with immigrants coming here in the 60s, right? It didn't start with immigrants coming here um, and building institutions and building organizations in the 60s and the 70s and all the way up to the 90s. It started earlier than that. Black history is just as much of it being American history is Islamic history. So Brother Bilal, how can we better understand where we are today in relation to that history if we don't look at our past and that which kind of understanding that, you know, is a continuum, right? It's not just something that started, I'm thinking back in relation to subhanAllah, like I, th I believe the stories of Umar ibn Sayyid and few others um, enslaved Muslims, right? And, and how they kept their deen intact, how they, even though despite 
enslavement. And I'm specifically using the word enslavement because the language is shifting, right? The language is not, it's taking the onus away from the individual to the system that, that enslaved them. Mm. And they kept the dean alive. Um, and so I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and we've talked a little bit um, about that, about, you know, one month. Um, but it, you know, and I, and I feel I feel the same way. Uh, we do have uh, Carter G. Woodson, who is the uh, individual who um, formate, formulated or came up with, uh, that originally was Black History Week is what it was. So uh, we've now, uh, we had uh, Black History Month, but um, it, it, it is fantastic. I mean, if anyone, I haven't read many books uh, by Carter G. Woodson. He has a lot of stuff out there. I've uh, been given excerpts and I've been in discussions with people who have read his books and know that I've, you know, an issue that I need to sharpen myself up, but, up on a lot. But I would suggest that people uh, who are listening today kind of educate themselves and who was Carter G. Woodson and what, you know, besides the fact that he did uh, Black History Week, what else was he responsible for? Because he was a from what I understand, and from the little that I have been exposed to, it was a very dynamic individual. But um, I think what uh, one of the key things that you said here is that um, Black history is American history, and 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 it is, it is. I mean, there would be no America without uh, those unfortunate individuals that that were uh, sold over here uh, and 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 came here and worked for free for hundreds of years. Um, and you know, and I'm and I'm a descendant of uh, one of those uh, individuals, one of those families. Um, and it's kind of ironic that we, we, we had this today because I, I recently, uh, maybe last year, hired a genealogist because I was trying to do the ancestry.com, but it was just, just, just completely overwhelming. So I hired a, it's actually a Muslim sister uh, down here in South Florida. She actually is a genealogist. So she's been working with me. We had a meeting today because she has some stuff she wanted to, to share with me. Um, there, my, my birth name, my birth last name is Turner. Uh, and uh, yeah, so <laughs> uh, I've been Muslim all my life. It's my, you know, I, I reverted to Islam. So my last name was Turner. And um, there's always been a, a, a myth. I don't know about a myth, but a saying in our family that whenever some of my uncles start getting a certain way, they say that's that Nat Turner coming out in them. Right, so there was a, a thing about we, we were related to, to Nat Turner. So today I finally got the, if that's true or not. And wait for it, wait for it, it's not. So yeah, found out that it probably arises from <laughs> one of the guys who owned our family. His name was Edmund Turner. He had a son, his name was Nathaniel Turner and they called him Nat Turner, so it's possible my genealogist is saying that, and the the little twist probably came from around that. But anyway, that's a side note. But uh, in terms of <laughs> in terms of Black history uh, being American history, I think what um, we all need to recognize is that um, what has held America t together um, in terms of being an actual well professing to be an actual democracy um, is uh, Black folks. The Black folks who came here as slaves back uh, in 1620 or whatever, the first year, the first Black uh, individuals came here um, and have been here and told whose uh, blood and bones and all that ancestors are buried here, uh, that we are the, uh, the part of the, of the uh, really forces America to deal with what they put down in that document called the Constitution and forces them. Anytime they try to back away from it, if we've kind of forced them to, to recognize that you said you are this. And if you say you are this, then how can we be who we are in this country? And that has been the dilemma and, uh, and, and what we call uh, in, in, in social justice movements, the original sin of America. Uh, which they have still yet to, to amend for. I mean, we see examples of some type of, of uh, uh, addressing of that and reconciliation of that, what happened in South Africa uh, back in a few years back, but we have not had any type of truth and reconciliation here uh, 
uh, in the United States. And I think what people need to understand is that uh, white supremacy was actually perfected here in the United States. I mean, it fell apart just about in every place uh, where this type of chattel slavery in the last 400 years was practiced. It actually kind of fell apart and it got defeated in one way or another, uh, either soundly defeated, like an example of Haiti. It got soundly defeated in Haiti. Um, and unfortunately, the, our brothers and sisters in Haiti are still suffering and still paying the price for that, for that defeat. They defeated all three superpowers at the time. They defeated the French, they defeated the Spanish, and they defeated, defeated the British. And I don't, any, I don't know if anyone has ever, in the modern history, has ever been able to defeat all three superpowers uh, within less than five or 10 years. It was, it was a short period of time, but they did. Um, so, and, they, and they're still paying for it. So what people need to understand is that white supremacy, this is the, the stronghold here, the United States of America was perfected here. And it is perfected here. And I think, um, unfortunately, we have brothers and sisters who come and they can't understand how can Black folks be here as long as we've been and still be a bottom caste, still be on the bottom. Well, because it, the system in terms of perfecting white supremacy, uh, classism, capitalism, vulture capitalism uh, has, has been perfected. And this is the way it should be. This is how they planned it. And it's very difficult to, you know, to buck that and to come out of that. So I don't know if you. <laughs> I just want to sit back and continue listening. At sometimes every time that you speak, I love bless you. Always welcome gems, and I really appreciate how you brought up that fact that again we've seen. I mean, just to tie it into something very, very recent that folks can kind of see. I mean, we've seen what happened with the January six riots. If it was any other culture, any other you know groups of folks, and just the swift um, accountability that would have come yeah. uh, compared to you know it was. It was white folks. Let's just say it, it was white folks. Maybe yeah. even a few other folks in there, you know, but yeah. it was predominantly um, white nationalists and others. And yeah. even now people are still arguing about it. So I'm just want to kind of use as an example, but for the Brilliant, you brought up a really important, um, right? And I kind of want to uh, talk about it a little bit more. For a very long time, um, non-Black um, um, immigrant refugees you know, folks from the Muslim community and, uh, and abroad um, and across who have escaped from war-torn countries have seen themselves as guests in the shores of America. So you mentioned this question, why, why people always ask this question of, you know, why are Black Americans still under the systemic racist conditions that they're in, right? But the reality is it's one of the beautiful things that I've seen is while other communities have seen themselves as guests here, Black communities have really, really uh, taking it upon themselves through from from a historical lens to how current current um, struggles and movements for for liberation, movements for equity, movements for justice really demands a different perspective, right? That we are part of the American culture. We are the backbone of America. And because of that, we're shaping it despite the challenges, despite the struggles, despite the systemic, you know, systems of, of oppression and racist infrastructures that we have to deal with, we're going to continue pushing it. So if you can just speak a little bit more in terms of that disparity, because we see this often when we're tackling external forms of racism, but at the same time, you also have to deal with internal. So we'll get to the internal, but from an external perspective, if you can speak a little bit more about that, um, just really, people always ask the question, well, why are we bringing race into it? We know it's because racism is systemic. One can stay blind to it. They can try to stay blind to it as much as they want to, but it doesn't change the fact that racism is systemic here. And like you said, it's a stronghold. White supremacy is a stronghold here. It permeates vital issue that we can think of. So can you speak about this a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I think what people need to understand is that um, right, to, it, it, white supremacy and the whole racial white thing and, and all that. Now, now let's, let's define real quick. So when we say white su supremacy or white people, I'm not talking about skin color. Exactly. Right. So they're there, there are white supremacists, right? Your neo Nazis and skinheads, and now what do we got? The, 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 uh, the Proud Boys, right? Which is ironic. The Proud Boys is actually started by a black guy. I mean, he's just as dark as I am. He's a black Cuban. 
<laughs> with his yeah we're not even go there right he's a black dude <laughs> he's a black dude actually down the street from where i'm at right now this is where where he's at and he starts the proud boys right so that that's a whole nother dynamic but um so when we say white supremacy we're talking about a, a system uh and then you have people who are tools of that system and uh some of them are black and some, most of them are white of course but there are uh, uh, people who are used as tools. Most of them knowingly, some of them unknowingly. They just don't understand uh, what's going on. So, so that's the first thing. Second thing is that um, now white people don't have to be outwardly racist any longer, right? I mean, you see like a Joe Rogan do his thing or every now and then somebody will slip up, but <laughs> they don't have to be um, like outwardly, like back in the, like probably the last time you outwardly seen it. I mean, Trump kind of brought it out a little bit more, but Trump is actually a throwback. You know, if you go back 1965, 1968 and back, you know, that was common language, the N word and, you know, LBJ, he would call his, uh, the cook in the house, you know, he signed, he was the one that signed the civil rights. Um, uh, they were Martin Luther King, he called, he called him the N word all the time, right there. I heard why he was signing, say, hey, come on over here and uh, bring me this. So, um, but now, because it's been so much institutionalized and so much put into the system, white folks can now pull back and they don't have to say that because now they put certain things in place. The redlining work, right? The mass incarceration work, the black codes work. All of those things, mass incarceration, you know, all of those things, the drugs and all that stuff, it worked pro to perfection. So now they just sit back and say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine. You know, no, no, it's not me. You know, um, you can't live in certain neighborhoods because they the certain neighborhoods, you know, it's at a cost factor where only certain people can afford to live there. And if you are been beat down as long as black folks in this country have been beat down and put down, uh, you can't no longer afford to live there anyway. So I don't have to say white only. You ain't going there because you can't afford to go there, even if you wanted to. So so we don't have to have white only or black only. And um, the third thing is to try to understand for people to, that I need people to understand is that, uh, you know, this country was built upon upon this, you know, it was built upon racism. Uh, it was, it's it was really, a, you know, people will argue, like I get to argue a lot of times with my, my left wing com compadre, <laughs> but he'll argue, you know, classism and stuff, but uh, whatever, you know, but uh, it was, it was built on racism. It was built on keeping the whites at this particular level and keeping black folks with a certain lineage that were brought over here as slaves who were cut off at a certain at a at a, at a below level and and the system is built to work as such and they use terrorism and all of these things to be able to achieve that so a lot of times uh when we do have somebody come over from another country uh, and they ask those questions well how how can i come over and only been here for 15 or 20 years and and, and do and, and now is welcomed into the middle class and black people who have been here for 40 years can't uh, because they terrorized us. You know, they did really uh, crazy things. For example, you know, my, my great grandfather, my great granddaddy raised me up until I was like in the sixth grade before he passed away. So I remember him very, very well, but he was from, he was from Helena, Arkansas. And Helena, Arkansas, I went there a few years ago and just kind of looked around. It's, you know, something out of a movie, <laughs> but, um, they, back in the 1920s, I think it was either 1919 or 1920, I can't remember the exact year, they hung over 220 Black people, men and women, uh, sharecroppers. And the reason that they hung them, they lynched them, is because they tried to unionize. And Helena is not far from Little Rock. They did it in Little Rock, Arkansas. Helena is not far from Little Rock. And, and I asked my mom recently, I said, did my grandfather, did he... You know, we call him, I call him Uncle Red. I said, Uncle Red, I never heard him, or did he ever say anything? And her thing was, is that, yeah, he, he knew, and he, I don't know if he was there, involved with that. Uh, they didn't, of course, they didn't kill him, but he was full aware of, of what happened. And he would get emotional. I mean, and they have pictures of the people hanging on trees as if they were Christmas tree ornaments. And this is the thing that I think a lot of people who come here to this country, uh, post most immigrants uh, didn't arrive here in this country, uh, uh, especially uh, 
black immigrants for the most part didn't come here until like the 1980s of, of, of darker skinned immigrants, 80s and then after. By that time, the whole civil rights thing was over and done with. Uh, the achievements and the things that were there, a lot of the outwardly racist things had already been broken down. So you came into the country at a time when it was quite easy or easier to, to move up as a, as a person with melanin in their skin. But for us who have been here already, the job was already done. The mental thing had already been done. I mean, I see my grandfather, he, he, he would drink, he was alcoholic. And I never could understand why he, you know, why he would do this so much, so much. And, uh, it, you know, it was a lot of trauma in his life. And, and that is a broken man, broken families. It is just something that's just been, um, you know, passed down for, for many generations. And I think people really don't understand and know what really happened. You know, I don't know if I answered your question or not, but if you can remind me, and I kind of go off on caveats, you know, this is that my I, age, my my age is man. <laughs> no, your your caveat, what you see in caveats is is dropping um, gems for us. To be honest, there's so much. I mean, even though I I'm I'm a black immigrant, I'm a black refugee here. My experience is different, right? Um, and we know that the black community is not a monolith, so I really appreciate you lifting that up. And one of the things I kind of want to hone in on is simply when we talk about, you know, systemic racism, it is institutionalized, right? It is deliberate, it is intentional, as well as unintentional, right? Um, that continues to impact the lives of black Americans in every aspect uh, that you can think of. I mean, like you said, redlining, which I highly recommend people to read the book, The Color of Law. Yeah, yeah. Richard Rothstein, yes. Yes, it's very difficult. It, it explains. I mean, my neighborhood is, there's a freeway that cuts our neighborhood, right? Um, people don't connect these stories. And something that you lifted up, Brother Bilal, um, as you shared your story of uh, your grandfather, just thinking through the trauma, right? The trauma that comes with understanding, like, this is a trauma that folks continue to feel and continue to be impacted by. And this is generational trauma. This is yeah. trauma that gets passed down um to from generation to generation it's not something horizontal it's something vertical right and oh, yeah. it needs to be compounded um by the continued um impacts of institutionalized systemic racism i think i try to explain folks the 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 fear that comes with you know making sure that i mean i'm not a mother but i am the oldest out of uh many many siblings and yeah. so just that sense of like putting your trust in allah that they're going to be okay because they're living and navigating in a world that's going to see them for their color of their skin, that's going to see my sisters for the hijab that they're wearing, as well as the color of their skin, that duality of really dealing with racism and dealing with sexism and dealing with Islamophobia is compounded, right? So when there's political um, movements that we see that highlight some of these um, issues around police brutality and what happened recently with um, Amir Locke with that no-knock yeah. warrant um, that ended the life of a 22-year-old man who was sleeping, who was, I mean, he was sleeping when he was uh, in, uh, subhanAllah, like just killed, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, just a simple fact, like 2000, in 2018, this is a, a fact from 2018, Black inmates made up roughly 33% of the country's prison population, even though they're just 12% of the U.S.'s total population. I mean, looking at these disparities, right? It's probably federal. If you add if you add state in there, it's actually more than 50%. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Close, more closer to 50, yeah. More than 50, yes. So, and, and that's the thing, it's compounded, right? So right. white supremacy and the structures that uphold a lot of these oppressive systems continue to teach, especially for those who may not have that, you know, melanin, so to speak, that proximity to whiteness is success. That right. if we keep our heads down, if we don't challenge the status quo, if you assimilate, if you lose that, which makes you unique, um, whether it's about your faith, about your culture, then in essence, you're fulfilling that sense of American dream. But there's been a promise that was made to not been fulfilled yet that I kind of want you to touch upon. Reparations was a promise that was made to black Americans and a promise that again has not been fulfilled and there's been a movement for that there's been conversations and folks have been uncomfortable about that right um but why is that important for us to continue to uplift these conversations and what does it mean for um 
black foundational um, Americans to be able to receive the reparations that they were promised. Yeah. So um, I am also a member of uh, uh, American Descendants of Slavery Advocacy Foundation, uh, which is uh, a group that is uh, a grassroots organization that is designed to politically educate uh, people in, in this country and around the world uh, in terms of uh, what is old, you know, our inheritance is what is what we call it. Uh, yes, there was, um, I think a lot of people, even for me up until maybe about 10, 10 years ago, thought that the whole talk about reparations, because in the Black community, we've heard about it before, uh, but like a lot of things, you don't have the, uh, the, the documentation, you don't have the resources or, or the uh, references to back up what you've been told. So then it almost starts being like what I call barbershop talk. You know, it's like, it's kind of like, a, you know, in the hood, something that people say. But actually it's real, it's field order number 25 that, uh, that uh, President Lincoln actually issued. And uh, 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 General, uh, it was General Sherman, uh, was the first one to execute field order 25 in Virginia. And what they did was all of the, uh, uh, white property owners who rebelled against the United States of America, they confiscated all that land, all that land. So it was millions of acres. And uh, what Field Order 25 was to do was to, um, for every male head of household member was supposed to get 40 acres, a mule and a hundred dollars. That, that was the promise for um, helping keep this country together. And uh, then they did it and they gave, you know, General Sherman, he was giving it out and he, he gave out maybe a couple of hundred uh, black head of households actually got it. Uh, shortly after that, um, Lincoln was assassinated. Andrew Johnson, his vice president, ends up assuming the presidency and he rescinds because it wasn't an act of Congress. It was an executive order that was done, which even if it would have been done in Congress, it, I would think, based on the dynamics, if you look at what's happened with Congress back then, it would have passed because the Republicans was actually in control of Congress and they could basically get through. They were getting through any and everything that they needed to get through against the, uh, the these people who rebelled. Uh, so Andrew Johnson becomes president. He rescinds the executive order, and not only that, but ordered that that land be took back from the black people and given back to the white landowners who actually rebelled against this country. So that was the beginning of the uh, first failure in terms of the promise that was made. Um, Andrew Johnson actually ends up getting impeached. He was actually, the, I think the only president who actually got impeached and removed from office. Uh, some people say, well, Nixon got him. Yeah, Nixon got impeached and he would have got removed. Nixon resigned prior to him getting uh, removed. But Andrew Johnson actually got removed. And uh, then they had more election. Ulysses S. Grant becomes president, and then they start trying to make up somewhat for that. And that's the period that we call Reconstruction. Uh, but that only lasted for about 10 years. It fails. And then basically, it's just basically a downhill uh, problem from then on. And then the, the former Confederates who rebelled ends up getting their power back, rearming themselves, continue. Uh, and, and actually, the uh, tra trauma and the terrorism against Black folks that got worse than it was even during slavery because they felt that you know the black people turned against them and so they were going to show them. So this is the situation that's been, and it's in that attitude and those things have been going on up until up until today, up, crazy up until the '60s, maybe the early '70s. Uh, but but it has continued as like this simmering uh, thing that has been going on for for, for many years. I think um, what I think a lot of, and, and that, that, that plays a psychological you know, aspect on what's happening. We, we, we now know, and, and some people who are listening who are medical doctors or psychologists know that trauma, we're finding out that trauma can be passed down from one generation to the other. I mean, there's probably even within just already known in some cultures that you don't wanna stress out a mother too bad when she's pregnant because you can cause complication. That child can come out kind of messed up if the mother's too stressed out, like, like traumatized. Um, and we were seeing that children, black children in the inner cities and stuff were having signs. And they, when they were actually doing the research and they were finding why, that this trauma from our grandparents and from our great grandparents, they've actually been passed down. So you'll have a situation where a lot of black folks, especially out here in the South, they, they have serious issues 
or 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 hesitancy hesitancy when it comes to being around white folks or dealing with white folks uh, because of a lot of things that go on. And I'm saying this just to make sure that you all understand that uh, you came when you came in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. You came during a period when those it wasn't it was no longer socially acceptable to be outwardly uh, racist or to outwardly do something to another person just because he, he comes from he or she comes from a slave. Uh, but now it, uh, it it is socially simple. So in terms of uh, when we talk about reparations, a lot of people say, well, um, my my family never owned no slaves. We just got here from wherever uh, in 1995. So why should I pay <laughs> for for slavery? Well, the, the the issue is is this is that when you come to this country, and most people, not all, but in the well over 90 percent came to this country looking for a better way of life. They weren't fleeing a war or somebody trying to kill them, although I know that for a lot of you know other groups that come here, that is the case, but they're not in the, in the minority. Most people come here to the United States for a better life, economic reasons. Uh, so when you embrace this country, you embrace its good and you embrace all of the capital, positive capital that it has to offer you, but you also embrace its debt, its debt. So you come here and you are benefiting, but you also are going to be responsible because you came here willingly, you have to deal with that debt. And America has a debt upwards of $20 trillion that it actually owes my people. We, we you know, uh, uh, scientists or scholars such as Sandy Darity out of Duke University, they've done studies already if, if uh, any of you have the time or whatever you wanna read, Sandy Darity did some, very empirical data to come up with the number. And we're and it's up, it, it's above $20 trillion is what this country actually owes my people. Uh, and a lot of people will question, well, you know, you just want a check, you just want a handout. Well, you know, no, it's not a check, it's money that's owed, it's my inheritance. So if, if I have a father and my father dies and he leaves me some property or he leaves me some money and somebody steals it, and then I go and I'm trying to get back what was stolen from me, you can't come to me and say, I'm, I'm asking for a handout or it's my right. As a Muslim, Islamically, that's my right. You know, no one can take away my inheritance. This is haram. You can't pro pro prohibit uh, an offspring from getting their inheritance from their parents. And this, what, what is old to our people is our inheritance, because it was supposed to provide that, that bottom, that floor to keep us from being the bottom caste that allow us to flourish in this country like all other peasants from uh, Western Europe and other parts of Europe that came over from other war-torn regions around the world that came here for a better life. Um, that was supposed to be our, our seed and our bottom to, to allow us to go up, and it hasn't been taken care of. Other groups in this country have gotten uh, reparations. Not a Native American tribes have gotten reparations. You had uh, uh, some people over in Guam recently have gotten reparations. You had uh, uh, Japanese Americans get reparations, uh, but anytime it comes to uh, blacks who are descendants from from slaves in this country or the institute descended from the institution of slavery, it, it becomes a problem. It becomes a challenge, and uh, so that's what I would say to to people to understand. Yes, uh, um, I am for uh, uh, cash outlays, cash payments, along with protections. Right. So just writing a check. Um, and saying that's 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 done with it would be a, a disservice. Um, I think uh, recently we we saw in the news where some um, uh, immigrants that were illegally trying to enter the United States were going to be paid the ACL or whatever was going to give them checks of close to a half a million or a million dollars, and there was a lot of you know commotion about that. Um, but and, and and I understand and and people need to understand why. Um, from some groups that is a problem because you have a group, 40 plus million of us who've been here from day one and helped this country stay together uh, that haven't been uh, appropriately given their inheritance. And so this is what the fight is about. As Muslims, uh, we should be at the forefront, no matter what part of the world or the planet you come from, as an Islamic uh, uh, tenant, an Islamic understanding that you can't prevent someone from getting that inheritance. Uh, it's, it's not, and that's not good. And that's what we're actually fighting for. It's not a handout.
very powerful. This is called Uh I want to kind of circle back on that um, as we're as we're talking. Definitely, when it comes to reparations, that is a promise that needs to be fulfilled. And I love the way you really uh, laid it out in terms of it being an inheritance, right? And of course, we know the role of inheritance in Islam and uh, subhanAllah, uh, the rulings on that specifically. And so just really reframing that to be uh, understood that this is an inheritance that's owed, that has not been fulfilled, brings a different perspective um, for sure. Uh, one of the things, and we'll um, probably go with two, three more questions, okay. is really kind of understanding Islam, alhamdulillah, this beautiful deen came to free us from the cancers of like ignorance, jahiliya, um, but sometimes certain aspects of our community cling to it, right? Um, Anti-blackness, as we know, is a global phenomenon. It's not something that's particularly within just white supremacist structures. We see it in how folks um, really deal with racism externally, um, as well as having to endure it um, in their own local Muslim communities. And folks have come far. We've seen the movement, especially after uh, the murder of George Floyd in 2020, and um, really pushing non-Black sectors of our community to continue to confront and tackle anti-Blackness um, in their spaces, whether it's on an individual level, whether it's on a societal, organizational, communal level, um, and really kind of take that step to help decolonize uh, their minds. So there are some resources that our team put together uh, that we shared uh, in the beginning of this month for folks to really take a step back and take that burden of education upon themselves to read some um, books that we that we put together um, uh, that were recommended as well as articles, listens to podcasts, be able to connect it back um, in terms of the Dean, right? Being able to take this as a sense of responsibility that we feel. So the non-Black sectors of the community, um, uh, some who may benefit from proximity to whiteness, whose experiences is and could be different um, you know, uh, sometimes some folks be able to pass off, right, as, 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 as white. Can you speak a little bit more in terms of that sense of how can we honor that, um, I guess, historical difference and show that sense of solidarity that is really uh, rooted in our Islamic methodology and the way of the Prophet ﷺ to tackle um, and really confront the shackles of white supremacy and colonialism that's impacted us. So that's definitely a very loaded question. And so, <laughs> but just some tips that I always love to um, just kind of get a better sense of what advice folks can kind of give. Because my advice is always go read, the Sunnah is clear, yeah, yeah. Islam is clear, you know, here are some books, you know, but also immerse yourself in community, right? The onus is not on us to teach. But also, I want to approach it from a compassionate, kind of like a graceful, compassionate uh, perspective of saying, you know what, <laughs> here's, here's, here's a little bit of a tidbit as well, just to be nice sometimes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because I, I have an answer to that that I, that I say, but I won't, I won't say that <laughs> now. Uh, <laughs> but I think, what, I think what we should do is, yikes. Well, you know, what when, when I'm when when other folks from outside ask that kind of question, I, I was listening to one brother talk and he says uh, he says white people are lazy. And I was like, what? And it, he says, yeah. He says, yeah, they're they're lazy. He said because they, well, it was actually you know what? It was it was an actor. It was the Donald Glover, I think it was. He says white people are lazy, and I'm like, what does he mean by? He said because they will not take the time to 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 observe what what's going on around them. Like every black person, no matter where they are, no matter if they're in L.A. or New York or Florida or Detroit, Michigan or Chicago, is all black people aren't the same. They're not all going to be in jail. You know, they're not all going to be poor. There should be some that are really, really rich, like up there close to George Bezos, if not George Bezos, and there's going to be some really, really poor, and there's going to be some in the middle. Is this going to be, you know, this like real bell curve type of thing happening? He says, but you don't see that. You see like a whole bunch of poor people, Blacks, and then a very small amount that are sort of kind of comfortable. They're not even like wealthy rich like that. They're just sort of kind of comfortable. 
and he said white folks are not they're they're lazy in a sense make themselves uncomfortable and understanding how they got what they got right so they don't want to they don't want to know so they they just kind of say well i'm not i've never used the n-word and you know my sister dated a black guy in high school and you know i didn't say anything bad about it i didn't think it was any problem with it and they just leave it they just leave it there and i think a lot of people a lot of muslims get caught up in that that they just don't want, they just like, hey man, I, I don't know, I'm I, I'm just working, I'm just going to send my kids to college and they're going to get a job and they're going to live in a, in a, and be very comfortable. So they don't want to notice when they drive in their car, especially, like I, I was in um, San Francisco, uh, went back to visit, my aunt passed away, and just in the sort of amount of time that I've been away, man, it's the homeless situation is just insane. It's worse. It's much worse than most of them are black folks. And black folks only make up about six to seven percent of the whole total population of California, which is the most populous state in the United States. But yet you go through in L.A., you go through uh, my, my nephew is still down there in L.A. He's an activist down in L.A. You go through skid row. It's like 60 percent, 70 percent, almost definitely over over 55 percent black. How is this possible? How whenever whenever you go, there's always just a bunch of black folks in prison, a bunch of black folks, you know, why is that the case? And so because they don't want to expand their mind and try to find out, you know, he turned, you know, they're called lazy. We've been here for 400 years. There's more books about us. There's more. <laughs> everything is there. If you want to know, if you really want to know what the real problem is, and yeah, it's going to make you uncomfortable. You need to be uncomfortable. Uh, uh, in order to understand what really is happening to us, what is happening and what has happened. Um, I think that um, I, I don't, in terms of um, uh, getting into it, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know what to, what to, what to, what to tell uh, somebody. I mean, I, I think when, it, when and if the opportunity presents itself, as in terms of Muslims, you need to go hang out and, and start trying to immerse yourself uh, in a black community, in a black Muslim community, it might be difficult. They might look at you like, you know, what are you doing here? You know, type of thing. But there's organizations out there. I think uh, one of the Muslim art is uh, a big organization. I think if, if you really want to kind of break the ice and try to get into understanding in terms of uh, educating other Muslims and other Muslim groups and other communities, um, there are like Muslim art is there and that's what they do. And I, and I think that uh, I would say as a first step, that, that we get real aggressive about exporting the, um, the, 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 the things that Muslim arts does to other Muslim communities and other communities in general to help them to understand because those people are professional in that and that's, you know, that's that organization is prime and that's what they do. Um, but from a, um, my perspective, you know, yeah, they need, to, they need to read, they need to stop being, being, you know, lazy and they need to read and they need to try and ask questions and try and understand what the his historical significance of America is. Um, I, like when you were talking, you talked about the, the kid, Amir, who got uh, shot. I didn't sleep that night. Malika didn't sleep that night. Neither one of us slept that night. So I don't, how many of people on this podcast are appearing in this country, you know, because Joffre was out. Joffre went out. And I didn't want to tell him, don't go out. You know, he went out. And, you know, I didn't sleep till he got home. Two nights ago, I called him. He was at uh, one o'clock and I'm calling him. You know, John for 21 years old. And I'm calling him like, wh where you at? What's going on? Because I don't, I don't want to get that call. I don't want to be in that situation, you know? And, 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 it, and it's very traumatic. It's very stressful to know that at any moment, either Akil or Jaffer or even Nandi uh, can get took out by a cop. By a cop. Of all, of all people, by a cop. And I don't know if any, like I said, how many of us on this that's listening to this or will be listening to this deal with that? On the, I deal with it on a daily basis, you know, and how many white folks deal with that? You know, people ask me, did I have a conversation, you know, quote unquote, the conversation uh, with with my boys? And I didn't. I did. not we, we started to go there and I didn't. I said, make dua before you get in that car and drive and you know, a lot and just rely on a lot. And I told him, if you feel that a situation is going a certain way, 
then you have to deal with it the way you see fit at that particular time. Because he, because you know, my, my oldest, he was like, if I do what they say, I get they kill us. And if I don't do what they they kill us. So what do I do, Abu? What kind of question is that? That a father has to deal with that. You know, this is ridiculous. And this is what we're dealing with. Um, and, and I told him, you do what you feel at the moment. You do what you feel at the moment. If you feel that to defend yourself, then you defend yourself. If you feel that to cooperate with them, and that will be, it will simmer down, then that's what you do. And then you make do all most of all. Because we ain't got nothing but a lot of rely on. You know, I, and I reminded, you know, when I'm, when I'm in my Usra, uh, we, we talk about stuff. And the key, the key to all of this is to resist. The key, what, when we look at the example and the parallel situation in terms of what's happening with African-Americans or Black folks, Black folks descended from slavery in this country is that of Bani Israel in Egypt and what Pharaoh was doing to them. And similarly, what the United States government has done to us is very parallel, very parallel. And the one thing about Bani Israel is that what Musa was, what they were, they were instructed, and Allah talks about this in the Quran, that they resist. You never, excuse me, you never stop resisting. You continue to resist and you worship Allah and, you know, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you, you do all those things, but you continue to resist. You do not conform. You do not uh, kind of just like, I'm just going to go along to get along. And Allah says that promise that if you continue to resist and do all the other things that you should do as a good Muslim, then Allah will reward you with the lands of those who oppressed you, their wealth, their everything. And, and that promise was not just for the children of Israel. It's for, it's, it's one of those things that Allah says in the Quran that is for eternity. So that's our blueprint. And I know you as CMO, um, subhanAllah, our executive director for Mass um, is on the chair for USCMO this year. And there's been a huge push before him right now in terms of the twin mosque initiative um, as well. And so, yeah. you know, this is going to, I love for folks who made it, so to speak, right? If you look yeah. at the communal perspective, and also recognizing because it's not a hand-me-down. It's not a, hey, this is what I got. Now you're not giving something. You're investing back what has what you've been able to benefit from, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a different perspective of looking at it. Um, and one thing I always say with the caveat, and we'll end with this, is the, the fact that the Black Muslim community and Black non-Muslim community have laid down a foundation of yes. organizing, of power building, of meeting that non-Black Muslim communities, immigrant refugee communities can learn from. Yeah. There's rich, rich opportunity. Jamil, Jamil Alameen, right? Jamil, Imam Jamil Alameen, right? Yeah. So <laughs> where, where are we with that, right? And I know there's been a little blip, 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 but we got, we're all, look, we got millions of dollars, millions of dollars. We have as a collective, as a Muslim collective, even just in mass, just in mass alone, we could hire one of the top law firms to be able to relitigate or get advice on how to go about relitigating that case or to go about to get his getting released on some type of, you know, home out thing. If they want to put a, a thing on his on his ankle or whatever, you know, we, we have it. We have it. We have it. There's no no excuse. So if they, if, if to, to, as a gesture, and this would be something that would make history in terms of the black community, if you want to do like a single thing, a single thing, then use your stability, your financial stability, instead of pumping in $1.3 million or $2 million or $3 million to build a masjid, take that money and, and collect it from all over the major areas. And we can come up with $10, $20 million if I hire the top legal team the, the big dudes that be representing, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> your mobile Exxon when they do spills and they don't have nothing happen to them because, oh, well, you know, yeah, I want that team representing Jamil Alameen. I don't want to be walking around and doing all these little podcasts and, oh, can you help? You know, no, we need to get the top dudes and we got the money to do it and, and get him at least to where he can come home. 
Maybe he be what they call it. I don't know what they call it. They put the ankle braces at a minimum because he's no longer a threat. And and that and he's what we call the imam of the imams. There's brothers in mass, old school brothers in mass that gave bayat to him. Ah. Yeah. So and they know he's the imam of the imams. And black folks, black they know folks, they know that brown. And uh, you know, but he he's the one. You know, that would be a good gesture. That would be a good right there. And we will actually be diving into um, the case for um, Imam Jamil, specifically centering the students for free, freeing Imam Jamil, as well as the lawyer who's working on it. Please join us on February 25th at 6 p.m. because we want to continue to uplift the efforts that's been happening. But also, again, we want to make sure that we're part of that solution. So JazakAllah khair, Brother Bilal, for laying that out. I wish I could continue going, but we are going to end right here, uh, inshallah. Uh, it's supposed to be 30 minutes, but Brother Bilal and I, you give us a space, a platform, we're going to continue talking, mashallah. Um, amazing, uh, beautiful moments. Uh, Alhamdulillah, just to be in community and JazakAllah khair, everyone for tuning in. We want to make sure that you really, really make sure that um, we're not necessarily just benefiting. Like, alhamdulillah, there was a lot of beautiful um, points that Brother Bilal mentioned, but turning it into action as well. So please make sure that you're doing that heavy work. Tune in, follow um, us on some of the efforts that we'll be having, not necessarily just this month, but throughout the year to continue to center, uplift, and celebrate um, Black history, which, again, as we said, is American history is Islamic history, and dare I say, world history, alhamdulillah. So uh, remember, this is an amana, this is a trust upon us, especially as Muslims, and the accountability that we talked about earlier, there's a heavier accountability upon the Muslims, simply because we know that we're going to be returning back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have the Quran, we have the Sunnah, we have the ability, and sometimes I get this question, I don't know where to begin. Begin right here, alhamdulillah, and take some right. of the tips and lessons that were brought um, by Brother Bilal in this call. So JazakAllah khairan everyone for joining us. Inshallah, we'll see you then, or we will see you, I guess, in the next uh, podcast. Uh, we ask Allah to accept from us and forgive us for our shortcomings. JazakAllah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.